it's uh, it is a privilege and a special time that we get to come each year. We actually talked about this and said, oh, I wonder if it'll happen this year with COVID and everything else. So I took you through Job, and I, I promise if I get invited back next year, we're going to, I don't know, do Philippians, the epistle of joy or something. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's some real valuable things in here. And in tonight's message, as we come to the last sections of the book of Job, I think we are really going to ride the storm. We're going to see Job and his friends as they reap the whirlwind. And our passage from Hebrews is so powerful uh, in such good summary. Each of the passages I selected for the New Testament intentionally were meant to grasp the, the core essence of what we're seeing in Job. And here in this section of Hebrews, we see that was read for us earlier, we see the mix happening where you have, um, we, are, we are told that we have not come when we come into the kingdom of God, that we, when we come to Christ, when we worship with the church, that we have not come to what may be touched. The blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom, the whirlwind, the sound of a trumpet, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure. So terrifying the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Is this to be a comfort to us when he turns here and says, but you, you haven't come to that place. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion the city of the very living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if he did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? That time his voice shook the earth, but now he has said one more time it will shake. But we are of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this whole story is really the story of the book of Job. We have Job who is a faithful man, a good man, a man of integrity. And he is worshiping the Lord. And he is part of God's people with his family. And he lives in an idyllic pastoral setting. And then comes the storm. The storms brought about by the evil one that wrecked havoc, remember? With godlike powers that threw down fire from heaven and whirlwinds that tore roofs off of his homes and left in the squalor at the end of the storm. Then God comes and shakes one more time. In the passage we'll look at today, God comes in the whirlwind and speaks to Job and his friends. And then, the blessed afterward. It's the same picture that the book of Hebrews says is the picture of the Christian life. It is the same picture that is the history of the whole world that we will now see specifically in Job. And as we do so, we see Job and his friends come to the conclusion of their talk as they have been seeking to know where wisdom can be found. Wisdom for the day of the storm. The book of Proverbs has this wonderful principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 9.10, it says it a little differently. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
What exactly does it mean to fear the Lord? That's been a major topic of conversation within Job. We've seen it several times. One commentator just sums it up nicely for us, so I'll just use his words. The fear of the Lord means to regard God with reverent awe. He alone is holy, awesome, and glorious. He's worthy of our respect. Because God is righteous, we should be concerned about the consequences of displeasing him. But our fear is not one that leaves us cowering and terrified, but rather is like the respect a son should show to his father. The fear of the Lord leads to wise and pure living. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps his way from evil. Proverbs 16, 6. Now Job, just like the book of Proverbs, is wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is a special class of things in the Bible. We have historical books, like First uh, Kings or Genesis or the Gospels. We have letters and epistles, like what Paul wrote. We have apocalyptic literature, like Revelation and some of the Ezekiel and some of the prophets. But wisdom literature, like Proverbs and some of the Psalms and these other books, and Job in particular, are a special kind of book that deal with applying the fear of the Lord. The whole point of them is to show us what it means to live in the fear of the Lord and so live lives that are wise and pure. For those who learn the truth, for those who the short poetic sayings of wisdom literature become a part of the subconscious mind, the wisdom of the Proverbs served as a moral and spiritual guide throughout life. There was a way to live successfully, a way governed by morality and success that lay in the fact that the morally good life was the life lived according to the wisdom of the creator of all life. Thus, the wise men of the Proverbs functioned as guides in both their teaching and in their writing, and they provided no new special philosophical theories, no advanced intellectual speculation, but communicated the most valuable of all human knowledge, how to live well. So that's what Job is about. Job explores wisdom in the face of the most intense loss and suffering. How to live well in the darkest of hours. And Job asked the question rhetorically in 28.12, which we saw this morning. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? In 28.20, Job says, the place of understanding is hidden from the eyes of the living. We can't see it right now. But in 28.23, he says, God understands the way to it, and God knows its place. God said to man, he adds in verse 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That was Job. He was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. We learned that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And even after all the evil one could throw at him in the great test, God said of him that he did not give up his integrity. But it got worse. He was struck down with a terminal disease. He was in excruciating pain. He had all the emotional loss. He had all the psychological burden. He had all the physical pain. And then remember his darling wife came and said, just curse God and die. It's not worth living. Then his friends came. And we remember that Job was in such bad shape that the friends just sat there for seven days saying nothing. They, they truly were good companions in a sense at this time. They just saw the significance of the suffering and pain and knew there was nothing they could say until Job finally broke the silence. He said in 3.1 that he was bitter in soul, 
In verse 25 of chapter 3, that sighings and groanings followed him everywhere that he went. The thing that he feared had come upon him. And in verse 24, he said, and it's God's fault. He has hemmed me into this. And so the friends began to rebuke Job. First, Eliphaz, with wisdom and perhaps mysticism, rebuked him by saying, look, Job, I want to comfort you, but you, you can't say this. If this has happened to you, it's because you've done something wrong. That's just the way the world works. I have had an experience of God, and I know he's holy and almighty. And God would not do anything wrong, and so you must be in the wrong. Then, that didn't work. Job said, no, I'm good. <laughs> I have my integrity. He says, heaven can bear witness. And we know that's true in this case. Eliphaz had a right idea, but he didn't apply it wisely. He should have been more humble. Then we came to Bildad, who just used natural lights. Look the way nature works. Plants grow if they're attached to water. They shrivel and die when they're not. Job, you must not be attached to God, because if you were, you would be growing like a healthy plant, but you are shriveling and dying because you are not connected to God. That's why your children died. That's why everything around you has fallen apart. Get right with God. Job says, truly, oh, sorry, and, and, and uh, Job, the bad guy, Bildad, <laughs> says, uh, how long will you keep saying these things against God and your mouth be a great wind? Behold, he concludes in 8.18, God will not reject a blameless man. Eliphaz also gets on Job in chapter 15 in his second speech saying, Job, you're doing away with the fear of God. And Job acknowledges it. He says, truly I know this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? But he continued to have faith. Yea, even though he slay me, I shall trust in him. But poor Job's great patience crumbled, and he began to complain. He began to challenge God. He said, God has worn me out, 16.7. In 16.12, I was at ease, and God broke me. And in 23.3, oh, that I knew where to find God, that I might come even to his throne. I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what God would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. God would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever before my judge. Then he makes a trial run in chapters 29 and 30. It makes the case for what a good guy he is and reminds his friends. 29.12, I delivered the poor who cried out for help. 29.14, I put on righteousness and justice. 29.15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Verse 16, I was father to the needy. Verse 17, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. Men, he says in verse 21, listened to me. They waited and kept silent for my counsel. After I spoke, they didn't speak again. But now he laments. In 30 verse 1, these same men laugh at me. It's all God's fault. God, he says in 3019, has cast me into the mire. When I hoped for good from God, evil came from God. 31.6, God knows my integrity. So Job lays at the feet of God a charge of injustice. And in 31.35, you see a legal term. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. He's challenging God directly. 
Oh, that I had an indictment, Job says, from my adversary. Then in verse 37, he says, I'd give him an account of all my steps, and like a prince, I would approach him. The narrator tells us in 32.1 that the dialogues thus ended because Job was righteous in his own eyes. So far, Job's been the hero. Here he's a little broken. And finally, in walks my favorite character in the book of Job, the young man, Elihu. He didn't come originally with the older friends who were Job's close friends. We don't really know a lot about him, but he knows Job. He knows the other man. And he came and he saw the dialogues. And he says that he remained silent because he was young and he knew it wasn't his place to speak before his elders. But he listened and he hoped that they would sort things out. And then he got very frustrated. He was frustrated with Job, 32-2, because Job justified himself rather than God. But he also, according to verse 3, burned in anger at Job's three friends because they found no answer, even though they declared Job to be in the wrong. In other words, he said, guys, you said Job's in the wrong, but you couldn't prove it. You don't know what you're talking about. And Job, you blame God? What's going on here? The wise sage, the naturalist, the agnostic have failed, but Elihu is a theologian. So first he rebukes the older men for not understanding what was really going on. But in the end, he says to Job, you're wrong. Look at 33, verse 9. Job 33, 9. There, Job, he says, you say... You say, this is Elihu speaking to Job, you say, I am pure, without transgression, I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. But God, verse 10, sorry, in God, verse 10, is unjustly your enemy. Well, verse 12, he says, in this you are not right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is the principle here. That's what he's saying. Verse 13, he says, God is greater than any man. Then he tells this most amazing truth. He says, God speaks to men in various ways. This is 33 verses 14 to 15, where he talks about that. And he says, in almost like our C.S. Lewis quote we had earlier, God also uses pain to rebuke men's pride, verse 19. But in verse 23, the most amazing part comes out. He says, man needs an angel, a mediator who would do a couple of things. Verse 23, he would declare to man what is right for him. And verses 24 to 26, lead him back to God. Specifically, this mediator would, according to verse 24, deliver the man by pain or ransom. Wow, who could he be talking about? Behold, Elihu proclaims in verse 29, God himself does these things. Wow. Job, like all mortal men, needed a divine redeemer. Therefore, he should not charge his redeemer with wrong. But knowing the others have all failed to charge Job with any specific wrong dealings, Elihu comforts him and says, Job, just speak to me. I desire to justify you. I see they couldn't condemn you. I will find you in the right if you can explain it to me. But Job says nothing. Perhaps the rebuke hit home. This is the only time Job's silent. For all the others, he immediately had a reply. He says, Job, speak to me. I will listen. And if not, I'll share my wisdom. And Job listens. This is the turning point of the whole book. The major change. All through chapter 34, then, Elihu corrects and asserts and defends God's justice. 
He says in 34, 21, God's eyes are always on the ways of men. He sees all their steps. Job, you said God didn't see all my good deeds. But God has no need to consider a man further, in verse 23, that he should go before him in judgment. He doesn't need you to come to his court and tell him all these things. He knows. Then in 36, verse 2, he says, I'm going to say something on behalf of God. I'm going to ascribe righteousness to my maker. And then he counsels Job. He counsels Job in light of God's righteousness to do a few things. Three points. Verse 18, 36, 18. Job, beware lest wrath entice you to scoffing. You're, you're getting upset and now you're starting to speak against God. This is a great sin. You're falling into blasphemy. You're falling into condemning God. Don't do it. Don't let sin turn you bitter. The New Testament says that. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give way to bitterness. Bitterness is the great enemy of the soul. That was 36.18. I just heard that. Second, 36.20. 36.20. He says, Job, do not long for the night. Suicide is not the answer. Job had said, I wish to die. Oh, that it would please the Lord to crush me, he said. I want this done. But he says, do not seek the night. Death is not your friend. God is. Third, he says, verse 21, take care. Do not turn to iniquity. Do not turn to sin. Do not turn to sin because of your frustration with God. And then after these warnings, he encourages Job positively. He says in 36, 24, remember, remember to praise God for his works. Behold, he says in verse 26, God is great. Hear this, O Job, he says in the next chapter, 37, 14. Stop and consider the good works of God. And he goes on and talks about all the things God does in nature. And he comes to this wonderful conclusion, beginning in verse 22. Uh, Speaking here, by the way, of, of, of what you see in like the northern lights and, and, and majesty of the heavens. Out of the north, he says, comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty, the Almighty. We cannot find him out. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness he will never violate. Therefore, men fear him, the fear of the Lord. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. This is all good theology and applied correctly. Elihu is never said to be wrong. So Elihu's thing is this, Job, man, man, you, you said this is all Job's fault. You have not proved that. You seem to be wrong. Job, you also are wrong in this. It doesn't matter that you haven't done some great thing to deserve this. You are human. You are mortal, and you are therefore a sinner. You don't get to answer back to God. Don't fall into the traps of sin that come when we suffer. Don't begin to blaspheme God. Don't give way to wrath. Don't fall into iniquity. But remember to extol God for his goodness to worship. That's exactly what Job did in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And God said, in all this, Job did not sin. In all this, Job had won the victory. But Job and his windy friends have had windy voices. 
They have sown to the wind, and now they will reap the whirlwind. Enter God. We've said all the way along that the heavens were happening independent. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, we, we see the scenes on earth and heaven. Earth and heaven, and never the twain shall meet. No one knows what's going on. But suddenly, God breaks through. In the same language of the book of Hebrews, the shaking, the fire, the great shearing wind that presses down. And we can imagine those men standing there together and their robes begin to whip and the wind comes down and they look around the ruins of Job's inhabitants and and they don't know what to do. And suddenly the voice of a trumpet cries out and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. It's no still, small voice. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Well, Job said, Oh, if I could find the Almighty, I'd stride right up to him like a prince. I'd lay out my case and he'd acknowledge my goodness. God says, all right, well, let's do it. Well, I'm sure Job was a little surprised at this point. <laughs> he knew that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. He said it in 28, 28. He knew he had messed up. Elihu had caught him out. He knew in 9.32 that God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. He also admitted in chapter 9, I I know, I know this is true. How can a man be in the right before God? Even if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Job knew all this, but the pain messed with him. It did him in. He couldn't pass that test. And he knew that if he was ever to stand before God, as he says in 9.32, there is no arbiter who would stand between us, protect me, and make my case. So what was he to do? What was he to do? Well, Job kept his faith. Even despite his complaints, even despite this stumble, he had kept his faith. But here he is listening to the Lord, the Lord whom he fears, And he must have been terrified. Skip ahead to chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord continues to challenge Job. And he says, well, Job, shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God? Okay, let him answer for it. And then we see Job humbles himself, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. I'm humble. I'm no prince. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Yeah, I've spoken foolishly. I will not answer. I will proceed no further. I have no case to make. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that all people are guilty before God, Jew and Greek. The law has shut all up under sin. So that when we come to the judgment seat of God, every mouth will be stopped and no one will have a word to answer. Even the best of the best of men. But God's not done with his lesson. In 40 verse 6, he continues, 
Then Job answered, sorry, then the Lord answered Job again out of the whirlwind and said, no, no. Dress for action like a man. Put on your armor. That's what he's saying. I will question you, warrior boy, and you will make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's what Elihu said Job had done. Then God says, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I'll acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. You thought I was altogether like you, but I'll rebuke you to your face, the Lord said in Isaiah. This is what happened. Job thought he was a little more like God than he really was, and that God was a little more like man, but he is not. Basically, what God is saying to Job, though, is this. Job, do you have any thought that what is happening to you surprised me? Do you think you have to make a case before me? Do you think that I do not know? Let me tell you what kind of guy I am. And all through this next chapter, he brings out these amazing stories. He talks about the behemoth, some sort of a beast. Lots of people think it's a dinosaur. It very well could be. Tremendous animal, tremendous mighty creature who couldn't be taken down by the hunters. And, and God says, yeah, I made him. And I direct him. He's the first of my works. You can't get him, but I can. How about the Leviathan, some sort of sea creature, a sea monster of some sort? Perhaps another dinosaur in our lingo. He says, you, you can't do anything with him. He shoots fire out of his mouth. He, his skin is impenetrable to harpoons. But you know what? I, I stick a uh, rope through his nose and lead him around. He's my pet. Who then can stand before me? Verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whoever, whatever is under the whole heavens is mine. Then he goes on and, and speaks more about all these different creatures and things that he does. In chapter 42, poor Job speaks again. Okay, okay. I know, I know, Lord, that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Oh, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? O oh Lord, I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's what Job had said. He's quoting himself. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, Augustine great early teacher of the church was, being, was teaching on creation. And one of his students asked him, what was God doing before the world was created? And Augustine looked at him. He couldn't resist. Probably with a twinkle in his eye, he said he was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sense in which, while well, that was given in a jokey way, this is kind of God's answer in here. You don't get asked these questions, Job. That's not your place. And Job says, I thought I was going to come stand up like a prince and say, hear me and answer me. But now I've seen you and I realize, oh, yeah, 
I repent in dust and ashes. Well, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, says James, and he will what? Lift you up. Job's humility is his salvation. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, he turned to Eliphaz the Temanite. <laughs> My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And by implication, Elihu, who agrees with Job and says the same things. How would those friends feel now? <laughs> they've come there, and all this time they've been poo-pooing Job. Oh, Job, you must be a bad guy, Job. God, God wouldn't do this to you. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. And God says, my anger is burning towards you. Oh. And God gives him a little instruction. What you're going to do is take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, the one that you were poo-pooing and talking about how bad a guy he was. And you're going to beg him to offer up a burnt offering. You're going to beg Job to pray for you. And I'll accept Job's prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bidad the Shuhite, Zuphar the Nemethite, went and did what the Lord had told him. We've got to go, Job. We'll be back. Came back with the bulls. Gave him to Job, please pray for us. Don't let God kill us. And Job prayed. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I'm going to read this whole end that all of Job's fortunes are restored. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy, and they comforted him for all the calamity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each gave him a piece of money or a ring of gold, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, more wealthy than Donald Trump. And he had another seven sons and three daughters. Not double on that one, you'll notice. The same as he had before. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima. And the name of the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Keran Hapuch. Lovely name, that one. Use that for your next kid. <laughs> and in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his sons' sons for four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And of course, he went to heaven like he knew he would. He said, even after this flesh is gone, I'll see my Redeemer. The wealth being restored, we can all appreciate that. Okay, God rewarded him. Kids were still dead. He didn't get double the kids back. He got the same numbers, kind of a replacement, but we know children can't really be replaced. That's why God didn't up the stakes on that. He wasn't really giving Job this great reward, but he was giving him some joy back in his life. You know, Jesus never promises us that this world is one where bad things won't happen to us. In fact, he promises the opposite. In this world, you will suffer tribulation. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. One of the greatest promises in all the New Testament comes in Mark chapter 10. I'll just get you to flip forward to that. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. 
This is right after the rich young ruler story where the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, oh, I'm righteous like Job. And Jesus says, okay, give all your wealth away and come follow me, be my disciple. And the young man won't because he's very wealthy and loves his money. (laughs) Everyone says, how hard is it to be saved? Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And Peter says, well, Lord, we've left everything and followed after you. Now look at these verses. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left a house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and childrens and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. That explains the end of Job. It's unsatisfactory because Job is still in this world. He gets wealthy again. Children are back in his life, but he's lost the ones that are gone. It's not perfect. He received back with tribulation. But in the age to come, eternal life. The greatest message of the wisdom literature is that our hope cannot be found in this world. It has to be found in the kingdom, which is coming into this world, but which is the next age. Because Christ died and rose again, he has inaugurated a new world. And we're the first fruits, the first part of it. Job is a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus. Jesus who was the perfect man, like Job was perfect in integrity. Jesus who was assailed by the devil, like Job who was assailed by Satan. Satan threw all the powers of hell at Jesus. Satan threw all the powers of hell at Job. Job held his integrity. Jesus held his integrity. Job was only a man. In the end, Job broke. In the end, Jesus never did. And because Jesus came through the other side, he has made possible for us to have eternal life with him in that world where sin and sorrow and suffering shall be no more. There'll be no more death, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more COVID restrictions. Let not your heart be troubled, says Jesus. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's estate are many dwellings. If it were not so, would I not have told you? Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The beautiful pastoral paradise destroyed in the storm, restored by God. This world... And all that we value in it will be destroyed. But on the other end, the perfect paradise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom you have redeemed us in the world. We pray for faith. We think of the man in the Gospels who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We think of Job, the great hero of the faith, who we can emulate in many ways. We think of his failure and we see in ourselves that we would have failed much quicker.
but we see in his restoration that you are good. We also see that this world is not all that there is, and so we pray, Lord, that you would tune our hearts to see the great and glorious truth of your kingdom, and that we will seek it first in your righteousness, and all these other things will be taken care of. Amen.